Welcome to 13, a bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today we are in the New York City offices of Lehrer Hippo. Did I get that right? Yeah, that was right. Yeah, close? Yeah, yeah. Do you want to say it for me? Lear Hippo. And we're talking with content and brand manager Natalie Sportelli. Sportelli is a recent graduate of Colgate from the class of 2015. As a student, Sportelli was an English and creative writing major who interned at NBC Universal, Forbes Media, and the Colgate Office of Communications. After graduation, Sportelli joined Forbes Media as an associate producer, producing content and social media for their Under 30 vertical. In that role, she also co-edited the 30 Under 30 digital and print packages and wrote articles on startups and entrepreneurs. In 2017, Sportelli joined the venture capital firm Lair Hippo, where she shepherds brand strategy, social media, web, and produces a daily newsletter of original content, portfolio, and technology news. Ms. Sportelli, welcome to 13. Thank you for having me. All right. So I think you are our first remote recording uh, with the podcast and certainly our first recording in New York City. Um, So thanks for having us. Thank you for coming. All right. So we're going to get started uh, a bit talking about venture capital since you work for a VC firm. Uh, Maybe you could just explain to folks what is a VC firm and maybe what makes Lair Hippo different from other firms that are helping to fund startups. So Lear Hippo was founded um, by Ken Lear and Ben Lear back in 2009, and we're an early stage venture capital fund based in New York City. And we are the most active fund in New York, which means that there's always a lot of content to make and plenty of founders to be helping. So what venture capitalists do is they give startup funding and money to get going to founders who would otherwise not be able to grow the business at the scale that they would like. Hmm. So... And how does, I guess, how is Lair Hippo different from other venture capital firms, if you had to differentiate? So I would say that, you know, when people think of venture capital, they immediately think Silicon Valley and the Bay Area and the West Coast. Um, Because we are the most active venture capital firm in New York, we have a really good sense of what founders are building right here. Our differentiating factors are our track record, which has uh, winners including all birds, which I'm wearing right now because you have to represent your brands. Um, Casper, which we recently went public. Uh, We also have Glossier, Warby Parker, a lot of brands that have made their way into the public mainstream conversation. Um, And these all started as startups, but now they're huge companies that affect and touch millions of people. BuzzFeed is another one, Axios. We have investments across media, emerging tech. We have drone companies. We'd like to be seen as one of like the most helpful seed stage investors, which is the very earliest stage. I have a great idea. I need to get it funded. Come to us. Um, we're New York focused and we want to get people off the ground. Hmm. How does a venture capital firm find the startups that it ultimately decides to help fund? Is it word of mouth? Is there like some research wing that is constantly looking for people? Or is there just another way for these folks to come to light? Is there like a venture capital sign-up board somewhere that, you know, everyone goes to? Like, how does this work? That would certainly make it easier if there was an open casting call um, for startups. But What you find and what's so kind of critical to my role as content and brand manager is brand. And so like a consumer company, you build an affinity. Oh, I really love wearing 
Everlane. I really love wearing, you know, a specific kind of sunglasses. You build affinity for a company based on their experiences. Do they have great customer service? Do they have a great product? All of these things are more and more relevant to businesses, not necessarily just products. So brand means what you're known for, how people experience you, um, and all of these things. So the long story short is venture capital firms help find amazing founders through their current founders. So it's a lot of network effects. I have a friend building a company, you know, she wants to pitch you. Can you send her, you know, can, can you get set up a meeting? But uh, in addition to the current network of people that you have, we, people go to scouting events, they go to demo days, we get cold pitches all the time. But what really attracts brand new people into the ecosystem, which also creates a more diverse pipeline for us to review, which of course is a whole other issue in venture capital, making sure underrepresented founders are supported and given the opportunity to get venture funding, is brand. So if you're a venture capital firm and you have a brand that people know, oh, they only invest in, you know, enterprise technology. Okay, so you're going to be attracting all of the people who have amazing SaaS and startups around software. If our brand is we're the most supportive seed stage investor in New York, um, we'd be hoping to attract people who would understand the benefits of working with us and what they could get out of that relationship. Hmm. So I've got a brilliant idea for a business, hypothetically, and I've got a business plan. And maybe I've got a patent for some widget or something. And now I need to get some money to get started. How does the process work when someone, I guess, either walks through your door or picks up the phone and says, hey, help me? So uh, it's funny because, you know, the more time that you spend in the tech community and what was so interesting to me when I was at Forbes working with founders are the way that people build businesses and communicate from the very, very beginning. So at Forbes, we, you know, we considered companies once they started to have scale that in venture capital, you consider companies that are possibly just ideas or prototype. In a lot of cases, they're pre-launch. So if a founder is coming in to pitch us, they'll have a pitch deck. Uh, and what that means is, here's everything about you know what I'm building here. Here are my competitors. This is a competitive landscape. Here's how much money I need for the next year to two years. And here's how I'm going to do it. There's always a team page. There's a formula for all the information you want to bring in to investors so they get really excited about potentially supporting you. But um, that, that boils down to like what the pitch deck looks like. And so that's really kind of the first step is what's the business plan and roadmap that you want to present to potential investors. This is very much like Shark Tank. Yeah. That's uh, is kinda, that bad? Is that no, bad? no. I, I would say that um, you know if I'm talking to people who know zero things about venture capital, but just have experience with these brands, oh yeah, like I use Warby Parker. Well, that's a venture-backed company. Mm-hmm. So startup is not a bad analogy at all. Those sharks are venture capitalists. I would say the process is not nearly as stress-inducing or on the spot or high production value at all. It's And I think it's a good impression of the excitement that goes into betting on a person, which is all about venture capital. You cannot mm. build a business without people powering the idea. And um, that was one thing I learned at Forbes was there are people behind businesses. You put a person on the cover. You don't put a business logo on the cover. There are people there. So I think that's what kind of comes into the process. The sharks are mean. Not all venture capitalists are mean. Um, you know, they want to help innovation and startup ideas happen. So they're going to offer great advice. They might refer you to other people. They're going to be more helpful than um, just passing. Gotcha. Yeah. So can you explain uh, some of these terms? And I've got a few different questions here about this. But So what is pre-seed and then seed funding? 
Okay, so it's funny because this is an ongoing conversation for us because what we're seeing now, and I'm going to try not to get like overly nerdy on this because we no, talk okay. about you it all the time. Oh, all right. Well, <laughs> what we're finding is there's, we've been, you know, 10 years of a bull market in venture capital, which means money is flowing in. Startups are raising more money than ever. They're also staying private longer. So what it means is companies can raise money easily compared to how it used to be. So if I am a pre-seed founder, that round will be look different than it was a couple years ago. So seed rounds used to be much smaller check sizes. Now they're much bigger. So pre-seed is at the very, very, very early stages of an idea where in some cases you're incubating. They want to get to a prototype. They want to get to a product. Um, There are people who do pre-seed rounds, but it's a lot more risk involved because you're not, you don't have product, what's called product market fit, which means that someone's validated that your business is necessary and they need it and there's a customer. So pre-seed is super early. The earliest you could go. It's um, just an idea. It's pretty much just an idea. However, seed rounds are more of the go to market. You're either launched or going to launch. Um, You're probably pre-revenue, so you haven't made money necessarily yet. Um, But all of this is kind of fluid. The very short answer is pre-seed is usually smaller size checks from individuals than the seed, which is your first kind of real introduction to the market. I see. Okay. And now then, I guess, logically next step here, what is series A and series B funding? So series, and they all just go up incrementally over time. What does it go up to? Oh, Ten, hundreds of millions, truly. <laughs> no, I mean, like, is it A, B, C? Oh, they just go on, yeah, oh, okay. yeah. Eventually, though, every company will want to exit because if you have investors and you have early employees who have equity in the business, they want to cash out. They mm. want to, you know, they want to maybe do something else, but they have ownership in this company that they want to realize, which, um, you know, is part of the reason they would stick around, right? So, um, you know, if you're a serious... Series A company and then Series B and Series C and whatever. What that means is that you're raising more money, which means that everyone's equity ownership in the business gets a little bit smaller, but you need that money in order to keep growing and potentially reach that exit. So Series A's are also getting larger as well because, um, you know, there are only so many deals, but a ton of more investors in the ecosystem. So what they like to, what we like to say about Series B and beyond are growth rounds, which means you have a market, you have a market, you have a customer, you have a product that's like pretty much locked up, validate, validated. And then the growth round is who are your next, what's your next layer that you want to cover? Are they enterprise customers? Do you need like to build a sales team? So those are always bigger. Growth round at Series B could look like $50 million. Um, and then beyond that, it could look way bigger. It really just depends on if you're an enterprise company, if you're doing software, if you're doing a consumer product, um, because you need different amounts of money to reach the product roadmap and the goals that you have set over the next course of the business. But you don't want to raise a whole ton of money because then everyone gets diluted and then your ownership is not worth as much down the road. I see. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, what is, uh, someone comes in with a successful VC pitch. What does a successful pitch look like? Like what do the people that get funded, what, what do they have in common? I would say that um, conviction. Um, one thing that was really interesting uh, in both of my jobs is 
the reason why you're, you're starting this company should make sense. Like there should be some kind of logical flow where you either realize that there was an opening in the market and you were the correct person to build that business. So I think developing conviction for a company is about believing that this person is the perfect person to execute on this business. So let's say that I, um, I love to use this example. Let's say I want to start a salad company, but like I don't like vegetables. So maybe you're not the right person to build that business. Um, but, oh, you know, I grew up on a farm and, you know, we made uh, harvested produce and all that. There's some kind of story that kind of connects the fabric of the company with the origin story of the founder. So a successful pitch would be, you know, a clear vision, a larger sense of what the market looks like, um, ability to take feedback from, the per- from who their investors are. And, um, you know, this is the person that's going to execute and follow this through. And I think, you know, the follow through is what's absolutely critical because so many startups fail. You have to be, have like perseverance, you have to have grit, you have to have all of these qualities that can make you committed to this business for, you know, at least seven to 10 years, at least. Mm. Is there some national statistic for startup failure? What is it? I don't uh, see like one out of every so fatalist, but it's, I think it's nine out of 10, What? but uh, our success rate is much higher than that uh, because of all the additional services and support and because of our track record. Hmm. Um, so a, a statistic that people like to share our percent that go from seed to series a, Okay. and I think we're over, over 75%. Wow. So without giving away any secret sauce here, um, what kind of things are VC firms looking for in an up-and-coming business? Is Do you look for um, specifically businesses that are tech-related, like, you know, they're doing everything online, or is it brick-and-mortar? Like, I'm, I'm curious if there is a type that, you know, your firm is looking at. So this is also a question that we talk about all the time, which, what, what is a venture-backed business? And... At the end of the day, a venture-backed business has the ability to scale to a market size where okay. it has, you know, a lot of exit opportunities, but it's also, you know, it's able to reach whatever maximum potential it has. What can be really tough if, if you're in like a consumer products category is knowing that, okay, I have a one product business versus I'm creating a business that touches, you know, this entire market by offering solutions across all of these things. So, you know, if I have a company that I'm starting with one product, what is the kind of category that you're tackling with this entry point? So it's like not just, you know, um, I don't know, like a kitchen utensil, but is it like a whole suite of things that can be expanded, right? So it's yeah. the growth potential? The growth potential. So let's say, you know, we invested in a customized hair care company. So their first product was, a, you know, was shampoo and conditioner. They've since done, you know, mousse, they've done hairbrushes, they've done hairspray. They're trying to own the customized hair care category, um, you know, and by offering all the solutions and the different touch points that you would want to have with customers and trying being the one-stop shop for this whole, you know, category, the sector. So uh, having a broader vision, I think, for knowing where you want to take a business can develop over time, especially because a lot of businesses pivot. You might be invest. Uh, people might invest in you, and then you pivot the idea, and then that idea ends up being like exactly what you need to do. But having that flexibility and adaptability is really critical, especially early. So, if our companies pivot, we realize that they've taken whatever they've learned and applying it to that decision. 
So you are pretty popular on Twitter. You've got about uh, 7,600 followers plus some. Uh, and you've taken advantage of your following by starting up a special Twitter tag for women uh, VCs. Tell me a little bit about that. So, uh, yeah, you know, Twitter is a fun place to spend time on the internet. Are you saying that, like, honestly, or well, you say that like you're laughing as you say it? Twitter is kind of, and, you know, across content and brand and how people think about personal branding and businesses, you have to go where your audience lives. Um, so tech Twitter is extremely active. People build their entire careers off of thought leadership and spending time in those conversations can really help position you as a leader in the space. It also is amazing for networking. I've met incredible people and very close friends over Twitter direct messages. Um, so the thought process behind creating that Twitter handle, which is like one of my two primary hobbies um, or side projects, was that... What's the Twitter handle? It's at by women VCs. Um, and it fit kind of in the niche where I lived, where I was getting frustrated with people complaining or, you know, lamenting that there weren't enough women writing in venture capital. And so, um, you know, writing content, writing books, doing tweets, all of these things are ways to create more um, attention for yourself and to build your brand. And there are, you know, a ton of really active um, male venture capitalists online who write books and do posts and all that. But I disagreed with the fact that there were no women putting out thoughts and data and uh, critiques and commentary on the industry. So I created this handle to help support to surface and amplify those posts. And so I have four Twitter accounts. This is my one of my, one of them. Um, but yeah, with the goal of retweeting and sharing content by women in BC as a way to bring attention to the work they are doing, even if they have smaller followings than um, the male venture capitalists, they should have equal attention in what they're saying. So How's that been? So good. We're at, let's see, I'm just going to hover over it, uh, 3,800. All right. And... How have the interactions been on there? I mean, with other, um, you know, women involved in venture, venture capital? I think people appreciate it. Um, you know, if you, let's say you're doing, you have a post and your friend has a newsletter and they include the, the post in their newsletter, you feel a sense of support. You feel like you have, maybe you're in it with other people. Um, you know, it's, it's always really fun for me to see how when I retweet something from it, you know, it gets all these more likes or it gets reshared or someone comments. I love the ones that are, you know, looking for angel investors to support this business, um, which are individual checks into an early stage company. Um, does anyone have, you know, anyone I can refer them to? And in this case, you know, it's either a female founder or it's a founder from an underrepresented background. And if I can help bring attention to that through this account, like that helps me um, spend more time on Twitter, which can be <laughs> really a lot. That's part of your job. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what's the biggest misconception that startups tend to have about VC funding? Um, I think what can be really tricky is realizing that when you go seek venture capital funding, like you will, there'll be more cook, cooks in the kitchen. People have more invested in your business. And so I think, you know, how involved VCs can or won't be in a business is something that people have to choose their partners by. Mm. So if you won't go out to raise venture funding and think that, you know, some firms will be super involved and very hands-on, um, and then that doesn't happen, I think the level of expectations might be a challenge. Mm. This There's, you know, obviously a ton of different answers to this question, but at least in my function, I think 
how involved VCs will be in helping you raise further funding and recruiting and helping, you know, business development, all of these things, you could either, they could live up to your expectations or fall short or exceed them based on how you've chosen your partners. Um, so, okay, they gave me money. Are they going to give me other things? Right. Uh, What's their style? Are they going to be super hands-on? Or are they not going to be super hands-on? So I think that's kind of a good question. Hmm. So you publish a daily e-newsletter. Um, what, ten, what types of stories do you tend to focus on? And do you have any good examples of something that you wish you could have included, but ultimately decided it would be bad to put into the, uh, the newsletter? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, the content and brand role breaks down into original content, social events and programming, Lear Hippo's brand, which means should we be, what conferences should we be speaking at? Um, you know, what should we be talking about more to make sure we're covering those areas? Um, and so as part of the original content was this daily newsletter, and it goes out Monday through Thursday, and we have portfolio news, tech news, open roles, which are really critical for our founders, especially What's that? open roles where it's, um, you know, we have over 2,000 jobs at our portfolio companies at all times. So if we can bring attention to the super high priority jobs to help them get oh. filled, that's really helpful to nice. our founders because yeah. they only have so much audience and leverage so early. Um, so I have a good sense of what. Uh, my readers like in the newsletter, but it's really a community newsletter. We have founders on it. We have reporters on it. We have tech people. We have our investors, which are called limited partners or LPs, co-investors, um, picking things that are interesting to people. I, I know that if I put any AirPods news in, it'll always be the number one clip. <laughs> Why is that? Because uh, VCs like AirPods. Really? It's just the thing? It's just any any new tech. Oh, I so see. more broadly, any new tech. Okay. People love, people like Tesla, people love security uh -huh. um, in terms of the tech news. People like to see in portfolio news companies raising money, um, new company launches. So we have two companies launching this week. Um, so we'll have, you know, blog posts on that. Those will go in the newsletter. So it's trying to be, you know, a one-stop shop for if you read one thing, one newsletter, you, you'll have a certain areas covered. But building, you know, building a newsletter list is hard work. Mm -hmm. um, and we're not – like my job, I'm not selling anything. Right. We're, we're focused in the business of building community and building, you know, brand for their hippo. Like I'm not trying to convert customers. So anyone following our newsletter cares about what we're up to, hmm. not because they want – you know, we're not selling them something. So at Colgate, you were on the London study group. Um, can you tell me about your time abroad and what, if any, impact it had on your career decisions? I love London so much. Um, I've been back, I think, three times since, uh, and so I won 2014. I have friends that are still there. I have business connections that are there now. So I think I'm going to go back in April, and I have meetings, and I have friends, and it's so incredible to know a city that's not where you're from or where you live that's in another country. It's just amazing. So, uh, you know, that decision was so funny because I was in the terminal at Syracuse, where I'm from, going to fly down to JFK. And I get a phone call, and it's from Forbes saying, you know, we'd like to have you as, as an intern this summer. And I'm like, that's amazing. I'm also boarding a flight right now. So I just have so many great associations with that year, of, you know, that that semester, but like that part of my life was just like only exciting things. And I, I had such an amazing experience with Morgan Davies on his study group and understanding another city 
that's, again, not where you're familiar with. It's just so, it's like such a special feeling, especially when you can bring someone new there and then show them all your spots. What's your favorite spot? Well, there's this one um, hill. It's Primrose Hill, um, and it is near Camden. So I like to go, like, all the way north up the a bit, and then you sit at the top of this hill, and you can see all the way south. And it's like my whole loop. I do this loop just by myself. Um, It's like a very meditative state for me. So as a relatively new alumnus living in New York City, do you have any good stories of how your Colgate connection has led to interesting interactions here? Oh, endless. I see people on the street all the time. And it's really fun because you kind of look at them for a sec. You're like, is that Oh, yeah. Hey. And then you say hi. Um, This happens at least twice a month. Um, So I would say that the most convenient one, which is why we're here today, is that when I was networking and trying to figure out what I wanted to do after Forbes, I realized I really love working with founders. You know, entrepreneurs really inspire me. I love startups, the whole innovation, these new ideas. Wow. Like what a what a cool area. Like didn't want to work at a startup right away. It felt like too big of a jump from like a traditional publication to a startup. Mm -hmm. So I looked at accelerators and incubators and um, I sent, I I spent a lot of time on LinkedIn um, alumni section for Colgate. And I searched all of these things, innovation, startup, entrepreneurship. And I found uh, my boss, my current boss. And I sent her, Hey, you know, I'm just starting the job hunt. um, But I'd love to talk to you about venture capital. Like, I know a bit about it because I was I wrote about it a little bit, but I'd love to hear you know your experience. Now I know that we all get emails like that all the time, <laughs> just like endless networking. But she said, absolutely, let's let's go grab coffee. And we sat down, and she said, we actually this week opened a content role, and then we started my interview process. So that was wow. the the most serendipitous thing when you think you're going for a networking meeting and then realize it's an interview. <laughs> That's very cool. I did great. <laughs> <laughs> you spent a few years. Oh, wait, wait. We're at question 13. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Right. That's yes. so fast. Nice and quick. So you spent a few years as an intern in the Office of Communications at Colgate. So now's your chance, Natalie. Is there a specific moment or an interaction that stands out as being the most memorable from your time working in the just amazing office of communications. I mean, wow, endless. <laughs> How do I pick? I would just say that, you know, and my sister is in college right now. One of the most formative experiences for me as a young adult, but also professional learning, like what is business? How do I, you know, how, how do I have a job? Like what do all these things mean? Was working in the communications office so much so that I, I hope you guys still have my torch medal hanging. I'm sure somewhere. somewhere. Okay, yeah. good. Um, I will double check when I and get that, back. On the last day, I, I printed out, a, I, I don't, I doubt this is still up, but I printed out a sign that said the Natalie Spertelli Memorial Intern Closet, <laughs> which is where I sat. And um, I'd like to endow that one day. That's like a professional finance goal Goals. of mine. Um, but no, I think, you know, getting uh, work experience while on campus, also interning you know, in the communications office over the summer and then at CNBC and then at Forbes was so amazing in, ter- in terms of figuring out what I wanted to do with my life. But if one moment would uh, sum up all of those things, I mean, they're just like endless magazine features I helped with um, 
But definitely when we collaborated, Mark Walden and I and the radio station worked together on the day that we raised $5.2 million, where it was, you know, the communications office running everything communications-wise, but then also having worked at um, and being part of WRCU for four years, it was like my two biggest like on-campus commitments working together on a common goal where I was like embedded with the radio station and then knew who it we just the success of that made me so happy that two sides of campus worked together to produce such an incredible result and it was just so fun I remember I think we were I, I woke up at four and then went to bed at two or something um to make sure programming was lined up it was it was great Natalie thanks for being on 13. Thank you for having me Thanks for coming all the way to New York City. Absolutely. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13 the number with your thoughts or ideas. Have a wonderful week. And as always, keep asking questions. Keep asking questions.